Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session. Biomimetic dentistry. It's all the talk nowadays, but what exactly does it mean? Welcome back to What I Wish I Knew. My name is Erica Huin, and today we are joined by Dr. Mahia Shah, who is a bad dentist. That's right, he doesn't change gloves, handle his own sharps, or use rubber dam during his appointments. <laughs> I'm only joking. Dr. Mahia is part of a group of biomimetic aesthetic dentists, also affectionately referred to as bad. And they stand by the philosophy of recreating a tooth the way Mother Nature made it, preserving tooth structure, and utilizing all the strengths and properties of modern day adhesive dentistry. Now this is an area that doesn't traditionally get taught during dental school where we're taught a lot more about mechanical retention and full coverage crowns. And so when I first graduated, I found myself often treating teeth with a bit of a cookie cutter approach and doing a 360 shoulder margin regardless of the case. But the more I look at teeth, the more I wonder, how can I do this differently with more thought and intention? and properly assess a tooth for the extent of caries and its defects and cracks and undermined cusps and better treat it for its health and longevity. Now this episode is part one of a three-part series with both Dr. Mahisha and Dr. Tim Maxwell on biomimetic indirect restorations. In today's episode, we're going to talk all about the principles and fundamentals of biomimetic dentistry, what it means, what it entails, the different terminology and all the essentials. In part two, we're going to chat with Tim all about prep design before coming back to Mahia to talk about temporization and adhesion. This was such a fun conversation and a great introduction into biomimetic dentistry. If you don't already, make sure you follow these bad guys on Instagram. They're so humble and generous with their knowledge and are always sharing cases, tips and tricks and have no shortage of dental memes to go around. You can check out our show notes for all the links. Otherwise, let's jump into this episode with Mahir. So biomimetic, it's actually very simple. And all we're trying to do is we're trying to recreate the tooth the way Mother Nature created it. So maybe in the 19th, last century, all we had was a microscope. So when we looked at the tooth, when we opened the tooth, we could really just see enamel, dentine, pulp. But now we have the scanning electron microscope. So that's once we've looked at the tooth in a much more detail, we know there's structures within the enamel and there's structures within the dentine. It's a bit more complicated than just the three layers. And we also know now that we have like-for-like materials. So we have materials that can mimic the, the properties of the dentine pretty well. And then we have uh, materials that can copy the properties of enamel pretty well. And we also know now that the bonding agents we have, we can replicate the same bond strengths of the DEJ, which is, that's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to recreate the two. That's what biomedics is about. And so how has this kind of evolved over the years and how does it differ from, I guess, traditional approaches, the traditional like principles that we were taught during dental school, I think it can become as a bit of a shock or something difficult to wrap our heads around because if we talk about in particular, and our focus is going to be like indirect restorations, you know, traditionally we're taught about, you know, retention and, you know, for rule and all that kind of jazz. But I believe biomimetics is a little bit different, obviously recreating the natural anatomy. Can you talk me about the history of it and how it's evolved and what that looks like now? Yeah, so if you think of what materials did we start with at the start of dentistry, and a lot of it was metal. So we had to design our preparations and everything around the properties of metal. And one big part of metal is we can't really bond, we can now, but we can't really bond it to the tooth. And it hasn't been able to be bonded to the tooth from for many years at the start of dentistry. 
So everything that we were taught and everything about the design, especially preparation, was about retention, keeping the metal, the metal restoration on. And now we just don't really need to do that. So a lot of what I find, especially teaching bad, is we have to start unprogramming our habit of trying to cut that crown shape because we just don't need to do that anymore. And it actually conflicts with the natural design of the tooth. So the best way to kind of think of the tooth is it's just like a dome. And dome is like a 3D arch. So an arch was the strongest sort of structure. If you think of our ancient ruins, the last thing to fall down is usually the arches and the columns, right? And there's a reason for that. And it's the design of the arch allows compressive force, sort of all the stresses to transfer really nicely from the whole weight of the structure through down and into the ground. So even if there's earthquakes, movement and anything, that structure is really stable. And if you take that arch shape and you make it 3D, it becomes a dome. That's how our teeth have just evolved to be a dome. And if we have all the little domes next to each other, which are all the teeth, as we chew, they all bounce against each other, which is why we need all our teeth. Again, we're trying to keep that metal restoration on the tooth. And we consider that the, the restoration and the tooth would last a really long time if the metal stayed on the tooth. So that's what uh, we're all taught and that's what the roots of dentistry came from. And now we don't really need to do that. We've got bondable ceramics and we have resins that bond as strong as the tooth is bonded to itself. So now we have to, we, we can go a lot more defect driven. So instead of just drilling that stump, we can just see what was the defect in the tooth, where was the previous restoration, where's the disease, what are we left with? And then we just work with whatever we left with because we can glue it all back together anyway. So when we talk about you know materials, and perhaps we'll go into a little bit about the materials that we use now and how that allows us to do more of this adhesive dentistry, to do more biomimetic dentistry. Obviously, we're straying away from metals and you know PFMs and these you know, preps or materials that required retention. What kind of materials are we using now that allow for the bond to allow for recreating the natural anatomy. So teeth, again, we have those two structures. We have the really dry, brittle, hard enamel. That's like the shell. And then we have the dentine, which is soft, and it's got sort of a compressive element to it. So now our resins actually really mimic that same compressibility and the same sort of strength of the dentine. So we have composite resin now. And if you look at the sort of the numbers, they match really, really well with dentine. But it's not a really good enamel replacement. It can work as an enamel replacement, but enamel is actually as hard as feldspathic porcelain. So people worry that Emacs isn't strong enough. Emacs is like three or four times stronger than enamel is anyway. And the strength of the tooth and the enamel comes from the bond, the DEJ. The way the enamel is really bonded to the dentine, that's the strength of the tooth. And I've got a video actually where you can – Compressed teeth to about 270, 280 kilograms, a natural tooth, before it cracks and breaks. So they have these really amazing compressible forces. And teeth have had to be, have to evolve to be really good under compression. And also teeth have to evolve to be preventing, uh, preventing cracks. Because the problem with a crack is, and especially before dentists were around, if the tooth cracked, that would almost be a death sentence to the organism. Because that crack would propagate, bacteria gets into the crack, an infection starts, and before a dentist could pull that tooth out, that organism would just die. So over millions of years, teeth have evolved to be really uh, sort of crack resistant. That's why we have these multiple layers. That's why I have all these little structures in the enamel. That the enamel can crack, we can get those little white infraction lines, but the crack doesn't go into it stops there. And that's been millions of years of evolution. So we're just trying to get back to that because that means our restoration will last. If the tooth has been lasting for millions of years, 
I'm sure the restoration that we put in is hopefully going to do at least a couple of decades. As dentists and dental students, we all have difficult days. You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on. Dental practitioner support is there for you in these times to give proactive advice, help you improve your health and well-being before there are major concerns. We all need a helping hand sometimes and it's okay to ask for help. So if you find you need it, call 1-800-377-700 or visit the website dpsupport.org.au. They have loads of great information to get you started. Mika, how did you get into biomimetic dentistry yourself? Like how, obviously this wasn't really taught during traditional dental school and it goes, I wouldn't say against, but it's, you know, different from what we've learned. So how did you evolve your own dentistry over this time? What did you study, the courses, the literature that you followed to now shape your current belief and protocols? So definitely what got me into biomedics was dealing with the cracked tooth and the cracked tooth syndrome. I swear to God, in uni, no one mentioned cracked tooth syndrome, at least in my uni. And then I was getting all these cracked teeth and we were asking Dan, what do I do? They tell me to put a crown on it, put a crown on patients. I still can't bite on this tooth. And then like four weeks or four months later, the tooth blows up in endo, charge them for a crown. Patient's so mad at me. I had a couple of situations like that with these really tender, tender teeth biting on, but you know it's not pop, like irreversible pulpitis. You, I really, I could bring this tooth back. And then couple of months later, it'd blow up or you'd put a restoration on patients still can't bite on it. And you're like, what, what's going on? So that got me really into finding out how do I manage these cracked teeth and which led me to Graham Milicic's work. And he's got this awesome lecture called the six fracture modes of teeth, but usually it's floating around on the internet somewhere. And he explains all this compression dome concept and how that relates to cracks. And all cracks really come from tension. So whenever the tooth is put in tension, that's when we're getting these cracks. And usually it's like a big amalgam that's wedging this tooth apart. So once I finally figured out how to deal with cracks, the answer and solution to cracking teeth is biomedics because that's in conjunction with the natural way the tooth has evolved So and, and sort of shaped. So when we protect the biorim, which is like the big thick part sort of below the height of contour of the tooth, that's what really braces the tooth together. That's like the column of the tooth. So that's what got me into definitely the dealing with cracked teeth got me into biomedics. And now with biomedics, I'm much more confident in dealing with cracked teeth. And I know symptoms I can get them to vanish overnight by removing the crack and rebuilding that compression dome. That's all we're doing at BAD. BAD indirect, all we're teaching you, how do we build that compression dome that nature's created? That's all we teach you at BAD pretty much. Can we talk a little bit more about just that cracked concept and why is it that those traditional like full circumferential crowns weren't able to brace a tooth in the way that you know the more biomimetic approach does? What are we doing differently that is then helping the tooth? Yeah, so like I mentioned, that biorin, that is that part of the tooth below the height of contour. So by drilling into that 
the more we cut away into that tooth, we actually lose about 60% of this tooth. If we, if we lose 40% of the strength of the tooth, if we lose one marginal ridge. So by cutting all the sides of the tooth, and especially the enamel, we're losing a lot of that bracing structure to hold the tooth in place. Whereas what we're trying to do is the overlay design, which is basically like an occlusal veneer that doesn't go into this lower area, keeps that bulky part of the tooth, but by we recreate that compression dome effect that holds, braces the whole thing together. It's a very different prep design. It's also, I find it a lot easier than a normal, like a conventional crown. Once you know the correct burr sequence, because I find crowns are quite difficult to cut, especially for glass and zirconia, which are these porcelain kind of ceramic materials. They don't like any bumps. They don't like any line angles. Everything has to be silky smooth. So now we have to kind of work with the materials that we have. And what's the best way, if you think of a dinner plate, porcelain, they will work really great on a flat surface under compression. But as soon as you try to put these things under tension, like a bowl, that thing's going to crack. So we just have to work with what we have. And we know that porcelain just works the best, like a tile, flat, bonded down, that thing doesn't break. And so are you predominantly working with just Emacs then or Zirconia or what is your usual material of choice? There's so much on the market now. There's, you know, combinations, all these different, you know, acronyms and mixtures of different materials. What do you use and what are the differences? So for me, my priority is bonding because the bond is what keeps the tooth together. And there's a paper that came out that showed bonded lithium disilicate, bonded Emacs, is 75% as fracture or as, as tough as zirconia. So the answer isn't to make the material stronger. It's if you bond it together, that's actually the, that's where the strength comes from. Now, I'm not saying that I don't, it's not that I don't use zirconia. There's definitely times uh, zirconia is great. When the enamel's all gone and you're just doing core, like you have to build up the teeth and they've got this hectic occlusion, they're going to smashing everything to pieces. Zirconia is definitely a little bit more favorable. I've got a really amazing Italian ceramist. He does just amazing work with, with zirconia. But I pref- I'm preferring to do bonding as long as I can isolate as well. So there's so many factors that come into it. Can I isolate? How isolate the area? How much enamel is left? How much tooth is left? And then also the occlusion. Like some patients, they just smash their teeth to pieces. And you, you just need to be a bit confident that they're just not going to break everything you have. And also the temps. Sometimes like if they have this hectic occlusion or so much muscle activity, they're going to destroy your temps. So sometimes you have to work with, uh, like especially if you're doing veneer kind of temps, sometimes you have to work with that as well as temporize. What do they do for work? Sometimes some patients don't care about their temporaries. They'll come in, half of them are missing, and they're just like, no big deal. And some of them, if you, they chip a little temporary, they lose their mind. So there's so many little factors that go into it. <laughs> Ideal, if it was my tooth, I would like a bonded restoration. I'm not too fussed about saving cusps. Cusps are so easy to replace. Things that aren't easy to replace are pulps and bio rims. So I, I'm happy to blaze cusps and we're pretty big on that and bad. It's, I know on Instagram, everyone loves to show how partial coverage they are, but I, as a patient, and if you are a patient, I couldn't think of anything more annoying than getting a, a restoration put in and then pinging off a cusp months or even a couple of years later, and then you have to get the whole thing cut off. Like a cusp, it's not hard to replace missing cusps if you just, you know, build that compression dome anyway. The cusps individually, they're not really helping that much. You're not saving that much tooth structure, especially if it breaks later on. So I think there's, it looks great on Instagram to be really minimal, but sometimes I wonder how minimal are you being if in five years a cusp might break and then you have to 
cut a hole, try cutting and bond really well bonded Emacs off just to replace just I'm not how much time are we really saving? <laughs> yeah. And I guess by keeping a cusp, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're leaving that, then is that kind of going against that whole compression dome because it's not covering the full surface of it? So it depends on what type of cusp it is. So there's tension cusps, which are the cusps as the tooth comes into that excursive movement. They're the cusps that aren't in compression. They're not getting squashed against the other tooth. They're on the other side. But they are really important because they they maintain the tension. And we know that teeth don't do well in tension. So if you want to be an amazing restorative dentist, ideally you save some of these tension cusps because they're not getting into that. If you replace, if it's not, you know, this we're getting into a little bit of semantics right now. I find do really good bonding, do really good prep design. That's going to go so much further than saving a cusp, in my opinion. Do you want to add orthodontics to your general practice? So many patients today are looking for aesthetic outcomes and, and changes, things that we can do with things like aligners and fixed braces that can put the teeth where they need to be so we can be more minimal in what we do to those teeth. I know it's something I wanted to learn and personally, I've gone down the path with OrthoEd doing the mini masters. I'm also getting treatment myself. I'm in aligners right now. If you're ready to go all in with orthodontics, you can go and do the mini masters with OrthoEd and Dr. Jeff Hall and at the end, you can get a postgraduate diploma. But if you're starting off with smaller steps, they even have some online education, including aligners and aligner courses that are standalone. In the COVID environment we're currently in, these courses have remained live and we can then go and do them in person later on. I really appreciate the way they've managed that and I'm still getting tons of value. OrthoEd gives you an understanding from the foundational level. You understand aligners as well as fixed braces, the mechanics and all the things in between. If you're about to start your orthodontic journey, check out dentalheadstart.com slash orthoed to get 10% off their entire range. You might even run into me at one of the courses. You mentioned a few interesting things and I think I'll flag it for our listeners that we're going to do this as a little bit of a series to kind of take us step by step through the whole process of doing biomedic indirect restorations. And today, well, this episode is going to be a bit more just like fundamentals, wrapping our head around this whole concept. But then you know, our second episode we're going to do with Tim Maxwell and it's going to be all about that prep design, about how to look at a tooth, how to do those margins, you know, where to start if you're not doing a traditional circumferential shoulder um so to really break apart that concept and then we'll come back to what you're saying we here about you know temporizing and then cement and ensuring that we're bonding while getting good isolation making sure that that is as adhe- that adhesion is as best as it can be so we'll dive into a bit more of those practical steps but you know just to continue our episode about other fundamentals of you know biomimetic dentistry one thing you said to me is that you know there's this big difference between doing IDS, immediate dentine sealing versus cause. And cause is usually what we think about when you do traditional crown preps, right? Like remove all the decay, put a core in, do a shoulder margin. Like that's what we're taught. But it's a bit different in biomimetics, again, because we're trying to replicate that natural tooth structure, right? Can you dive into that concept a bit for me? Also, I'm glad you brought IDS up because IDS is like the roots and the core of that. I think Bill Bill has the best explanation for bad that I think a five year old I mean sorry for IDS that a five year old can understand 
And if you can explain it to them, something to a five-year-old, that means you really understand it, right? So if you were hanging up a picture and you had one of those glue-on hooks, if you put you put the glue on like the little hook on, you wouldn't put the picture up straight away, right? You would let the hook this the the glue set a little bit before it becomes strong enough for you to hang the picture. If you put the hook on and then put the picture straight away, what's going to happen? It's probably just the picture's going to pull the hook off the wall. That's all IDS is. So we put the glue on the tooth. And then we let the glue really set into the tooth, which takes about five minutes. And then we put the hook on. That's all IDS is. So by just slowing down, letting that glue set, letting the hybrid layer form, which is when, you know, the resin starts to get into the dentine and become really locked in, that's, that becomes your pulp cap. You know, that's your base. That's your liner. And that just takes time. So they say at about one minute, the 60 to 70% of those bonds are matured. So even just waiting one minute before you start to put more layers on that resin, on the dentine part, is already doing heaps. But at five minutes is when it's about 90%. And then after that, 30 minutes is about 95, 98, which is really good for CEREC. So if you think you do your IDS, you've got about half an hour till your restoration is made. So that's why CEREC's really great for biomimetic. But just by, and we also don't mean that if you're waiting, you, you put a timer on and you just sit around because no one's going to do that. But just do something else. So I might start bonding on another tooth or I might start to build up the shells in between the teeth. And that's all we just know is that just don't disturb that dentine bond for a few minutes and let it set in. And suddenly your sensitivity is going to go away. Your bond strength is going to get really good. And your dentine is actually going to be bonded really well. And that's the core foundation. So that's different to a core because a core will start to build up those layers really quickly. And what we know is that different dentine bonds differently. So the dentine that's really deep bonds at kind of differently to the dentine that's a bit more superficial because it's got a lot more mineral in it. So we don't want to stick to all these different parts of the tooth too quickly and then have our core pull off in different areas. That's when you get that delamination. And that's usually when the whole crown and the core come out together. So we... We like to do like an IDS, which is just put the bond on and then we might wait, might do something else and then slowly layer up our core. So it is still a core a lot of the time, but it's just the technique used behind the core is going to be where we want the bond. We want that dentine bond because the dentine bond actually has twice the strength of potential as the enamel bond. The enamel bond, we can get about 36 MPA. Dentine bond, we know we can get to about 60 with clear fill SE. and 80 MPA, it's almost two to three times more sped, stronger than the enamel bond with Clearfill SE Protect, which we can't get in Australia yet, but the potential is there. So if you use good technique, we can bond better to the dentine than the enamel, which is mind-blowing. Which is like everything that we always said doesn't happen. <laughs> right, exactly. You're yeah. saying everyone tells us the dentine bond with resins terrible and unreliable, but it's actually the, the better one if you do it properly. So just to reiterate, drive home that message, can we break it step by step exactly what you are doing so that it's really clear and obvious what exactly this immediate dentine sealing, how to have a really good technique is? So if we start off, okay, we've, you know, we'll talk about prep design with Tim. So we've prepped the tooth. We've now, I guess actually backtrack. <laughs> At what point are we, do are we doing this after we've prepped the tooth? Is that when we're doing our immediate dentine sealing? That's when I find the best. So regardless of if it was a direct or indirect, it's still the same technique. And you've cleaned the tooth. You've got your peripheral seal zone, which is another concept in uh, biomedics. Very simple. You just want the two millimeters from the DJ towards the pulp. So that two millimeters, just make it spotless. 
clean the make sure that's clean as because you know that's going to bond really well. So you've done that. It's all clean. All the enamels like how you want it. You you will just be about to scan, but just before you do that, you're going to depending on your bonding agent, you make sure you read your instructions. You can do it with really any bonding agent. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a gold standard. Gold standards are better because you get a thicker hybrid layer on in the research. But you can do it with literally any bond that you have as long as it's not expired. So you do etch first. Etch first. That's it. Yep. So now etch does some some obviously some bonding agents have etching primers self etch. So it's up to you what you want to do. Just follow the instructions correctly. That's the most important thing. So you etch if you want to etch. Uh, if you need to etch, you do your normal priming. If you have a priming step. And then just use your bond, air dry, air thin it if you need to. We try not to air thin because when you air thin, you do infuse some bubbles into that layer as well. So you don't air thin. But then my thoughts are like, you know how we say not to have too much excess then? <laughs> I feel like there's um there's the right amount. What is the right amount? <laughs> and how long should we be applying it? So I use OptiBond FL. So I don't need to air thin, but it is a really thick, thick adhesive. So I'll place my adhesive. And then I'll get another brush, um, like a dry brush, and then use that to kind of soak up the excess and I'll wipe it off and then soak in. So you get like that really thin, thin layer. And then just make sure you set it 20 seconds. I like to get, because that's the most crucial step. It's that hybrid layer. So I like to get a really good cure on it. And then most importantly, if you are doing an indirect, get your glycerin gel on it and otherwise your temper is going to really stick and, and uh, set that under your glycerin gel. And then you can refine your enamel. The Japanese guys, they don't refine the enamel. They do an IES, so they immediately seal the enamel as well. That's only the Japanese guys. But I refine up my enamel, just make it a bit tidier. And the other good effect of this is you'll in Biomex, we also do a, what's called a resin coat. And that's just like an extra layer of adhesive that you put on. So all you're doing is you've done your IES, then you put like a little half a millimeter thick layer of global over just the dentine. And what that's there to do is we want the free radicals from that layer to sometimes just get into that bond layer and really set the bond. So that's an extra step. With OptiBond FL, you can get away with that doing that. But I do it anyway. So that's called the resin coat. So if you see RC on Instagram or whatever, that's all they're doing is a bit of flowable on your bonded layer just to make sure that that bond is fully, fully cured and it's not too thin anyway. And then you do your glycerin gel over that flowable. So that's what we see on Instagram when everyone has those like frosty white frosty <laughs> restorations. White. That's what we're trying to show you that there's so much bond strength. There's so much bond potential. And you can actually, I think it was Pascal Mania, he did a paper showing that you can air abrade these IDS resin sort of buildup or bases, you can call them. You can air abrade them 12 weeks later with no reduction in bond strength. So you can feel secure even if your patient vanishes for a month or two months. And if you do have air abrasion, air abrasion is the trick though. Even the cheap, cheap, nasty air abrasion, but as long as it's air abrasion, 50 micrometer aluminium oxide, that 12 weeks later, no issue with your bonding. Because we know that in resin, only 60% of the resin is polymerized with our composite resin. So as long as you air abrade, you introduce all that resin up again, and you have a lot of potential to bond to it again. So you were saying before when we were talking about, you know, doing this, the RC part of the preparation then that's in replacement of having to do a core where you literally just packable composite, stacking it all up, building up the center of the tooth. Essentially, you're not really building up much of the tooth. You're just sealing the dentine 
having it ready for bonding, but we're not really adding any using that core because I guess the core was really back more traditional approach of having that retentive prep. Is that right? Exactly, because we were trying to build that axial wall height to to hold the tooth on. But I like to also think of the resin coat as it fills those little bumps and the defects and everything. So it gives us that really smooth surface for the ceramic to sit on top of. And ceramic, again, loves the smoothness and loves flat surfaces. Works best in compression. So if we can provide that flat surface with all the little bumps and the defects and everything, the ceramic's going to sit really happily on top of that, bonded really well. Your tooth's going to last for ages and ages. It's going to be really strong with that being at the detriment to the tooth opposite. It's still going to be very held together very well. When you first started with this whole you know, biomimetic approach and still developing your technique, did you find that you had issues of like debonding or where your prep wasn't retentive and then suffering consequences of that? Like what was kind of that initial learning phase for you like? I think you have to use a rubber dam. If you don't if you if you've got your rubber dam on and you're following the techniques you're learning literally for Instagram, you're pretty safe. The rubber dam was a big one. And when I was, my bonding wasn't probably as good and I was trying to just bond, to just use dentine bonding. There wasn't much enamel on these teeth. So if you're learning, make sure you pick teeth that have a good ring of enamel. That's a great place to start. You can really push the dentine bonding once you've had a bit of practice and your isolation is really good, your bonding protocols are really tight and you're following the instructions really well. But starting, pick those teeth, you know, especially premolars are really great because when you cut a crown prep on a premolar, sometimes there's like nothing left. But <laughs> and then you feel it's like you a stump. Those, <laughs> it's a stump, and it's got this annoying yeah. figure eight, the figure eight yeah. shape, and it's just like not a great design for a crown. But it's great for mm-hmm. overlay, especially if they're like you can hide it pretty well, then they don't smile too wide. You can and you you can blend the margins pretty well with a bit of practice as well. Those are great places to start. Upper sixes, endo treated teeth. Just so you don't have to cut those crowns. You just cut it really flat. But you just want to be, if you want to feel confident, a big thick ring of enamel really helps because you know you've got a good enamel bond at least. Excellent. Mahia, do you have any final concepts or final take-home messages that you think are really important for people who are you know, getting into biomedic dentistry to really understand anything that you want them to you know, take home with them after this episode? I think just number one, realize it's the coolest time to be a dentist ever. This is like, we are in the best time ever to be a dentist. We've, we've got all these good traditional techniques that have worked. So we've got that under our belt, but we've got all this new tech. We've got amazing materials. They're getting better. The gadgets are there to help us. We've got adhesion now. It's a cool time to be a dentist and it's exciting, but you just got to decide which side of history you want to be on because it's a it's a hard thing to step into a new world of techniques, practice them on your patients. You might mess up a little bit. Things might not see. You might have to do redo a couple of things, but you really will learn. And then it's very exciting because you're in this new realm of dentistry. You've got all these new te- tools to help you out. Your patients are really grateful because they should they can tell you care. Once you can get that rubber dam under your belt, it just opens the world up for your confidence and it's you really build a lot of confidence in your dentistry and then then becomes a really fun job you meet really awesome people and uh you can build a really cool life so yeah just get excited i think that'll be my advice just get really excited it's cool time to be a dentist thank you so much for listening to the dental head start podcast i genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist 
So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.